Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan with weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director, as always. Hey there. And so uh, we are continuing uh, with Kings and Chronicles and Romans, and so uh, hopefully you've enjoyed a couple weeks kind of sticking through um, one collection of storytelling and letter writing and so um we get a we get a sort of a a brief flashback to elisha who told this sumanite woman about the famine and she leaves town and then she ends up coming back and ultimately kind of gets saved from this famine and um gahazi sharing with the king uh about uh, to north about what elisha's done they're trying to take the land and ultimately um lo and behold who walks in but this lady and her son and the king orders the restoration. It's as if Elijah's miracles with this family have still justice and mercy implications even moving forward, which uh, it's just fitting for Elisha. Yeah. And with the idea of, like we talked about before with Naboth and his vineyard, the land ownership and possession is such a key part of being an Israelite. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, I think it's really important or worth noting that the main person in this story is this woman who is having the land restored to her. And so even the validation of a woman's role in property ownership or um, entitlement is really powerful for us to read around this time. Yep. And Hazael, um, this <clears throat> leader from the north, ends up talking to Elisha about this king's fate. Uh, Ben-Hadad sends him basically to, to go talk to Elisha to find out what's going to happen to him. Um, so even these Syrians seem to know uh, Elisha's got some um, prophetic power uh, behind who he is. And um, ultimately, uh, he, he tells him to go back, tell the king he's fine, mm. uh, but he's actually still going to die. And then uh, Elisha uh, ends up sort of weeping. Uh, and the reason is because Hazael, sort of this moment of judgment uh, upon the northern kingdom, he, he will be anointed to be this judge of uh, a type of judge for the northern kingdom. And uh, this is a fulfillment of what Elijah's job was to do. Uh, Elijah was told, hey, um, go go uh, have Elisha as your follower, but also the, go to Hazael and Jehu and anoint them. And so Elisha's kind of carrying on the mantle, carrying on the role of Elijah here. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to see Elisha's role in Syria. He seems to be a really active part of what's going on in Syria. And I guess it's because they are interacting with Israel a lot right now. But I think what we see is in this story is almost a reiteration or a preparing for what Hazel will do to Israel. Um, And I think we have to continue, which we'll have to do often as we continue to read this, is is reconcile that this judgment is part of God's sovereign plan. And even though it makes God's faithful, devoted remnant weep, uh, God has a plan and it's going to be really painful. Yeah, if Elisha's the prophetic judge of the north, Hazael will be the practical judge of the north. Um, and Hazael goes home and ends up uh, taking uh, Elisha's prophecy into his own hands and killing the king the next day under some wet blankets. So um, it gives you the kind of picture of what kind of guy Hazael is as well. And then uh, Jehoram, uh, we go back to the south here. Jehoram is uh, over the south, or Joram, depending on which translation you're reading. So confusing. Um, But uh, this guy ends up marrying Ahab's daughter, which uh, is a fairly big no-no. I mean, his dad had been told not to work with the folks in the north multiple times, um, and and yet uh, he's still going about it. And so, yeah. Yeah, and we see this little note about God promising to preserve the line of David because of his covenant with David, which is a reminder and a reflection back on God's promises, how God is faithful even to a faithless people. And and if you look at lineages of these kings, like it had been pretty linear up to this point. It gets 
a little bit messy here when the northern and Tsar tribes sort of start mixing a little bit uh, for a generation or two. And so uh, after him comes Ahaziah, who's sort of Ahab's son, son-in-law, something along those lines. Uh, uh, and he's a wicked king uh, for like one year. That's all he's about to get. And he, but he does go to work with Joram, the folks in the north, uh, to fight against Hezael. Yeah, so I feel like with the northern kingdoms, we saw them fall into sin and wickedness almost immediately when they divided, and we saw a much slower fade. But here we're kind of seeing them hit around the same like rock bottom of wickedness. I don't know if it's rock bottom. I, there's probably a few of those. But mm-hmm. uh, the decline was slower, but we're seeing them decline to the point of um, and the level of wickedness that the northern kingdoms were walking in at this point. But we get another sort of sneak attack anointing. Uh, one of the prophets from Elisha school does uh, pulls their, his best version of Samuel and um, goes up to the north, finds uh, this guy named Jehu and anoints him. And actually pulls him aside from his army crowd, anoints him, and uh, all the army guys are like, all right, well, you're our new king. We're going to follow you. Um, and this is part two of the Elijah's uncompleted tasks. Uh, yeah, so. I think it's interesting that uh, Jehu's, everybody kind of listened to the prophet in this specific case. And I, my guess is that that, you know, even though they normally didn't listen to the prophets of God, in this case, it was probably something they wanted, so they went for it. Yeah, and, and it's interesting compare and contrast because, uh, as, as I've pointed out, Elisha is a little bit more of this sort of um, compassionate, slow to anger, working with people on the margins, like healing um, kind of prophet when Jehu is about to be like the righteous punishment uh, type of character in the right. story. Uh, and he just starts going to town uh, and um, does all these series of events. So he yeah. starts. Yeah. Um, if you look at a list, you'll see Jehu assassinates, Jehu executes, Jehu slaughters, Jehu strikes down. Yeah, and then he reigns and he becomes, yeah. he's anointed and he reigns. And in the middle, he just does all these kills. Like, yeah. Brutally. Um, and so he goes to confront the King. Um, they send some sentinels out, but eventually the sentinels are like, yeah, we're on Jehu's side. Um, and he, he calls out King Joram, uh, and, uh, and ultimately Jehu stabs him in the heart. Um, and so they dispose of the body of Joram in Naboth's fields. So this is a callback. That's a fulfillment of prophecy, but also a callback. Like, it's interesting that the, the, some of the atrocities of Ahab get um, uh, a repeat here, and it's not necessarily the Baal worship. It was even the injustice of Ahab's mm-hmm. story, too. Um, and With Ahab, the injustice done to Naboth in yeah. his vineyard. And Ahaziah is there, too, who, uh, yes, is the king to the south, but at the same time, he is in the line of Ahab. And Jehu's job here is to kill the lineage off of Ahab, or at least he thinks his job is that. And so um, he takes care of Ahaziah from the South as well. Yeah, we can't, I don't know that it's very clear. I mean, we see God speaking to Elijah about using Jehu to bring about judgment and justice, uh, but we don't know that Jehu is necessarily filling, fulfilling a God given task or he's just doing what he wants to do. And yeah. God is using him. Yeah. We, we get God saying, look like Ahab, your family line is not going to mm-hmm. be the lineage. Um, now, does that mean that it, everybody has to be killed? Does that mean uh, that it'll, it'll be a, a smoother handover? Than I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the options were in sort of 3,000 years ago society. Um, and so, but in Jehu's mind, it certainly is. Let's let's kill the bloodline where we can. Yeah. And Jezebel gets confronted as well. Um, she gets decked out in her uh, queenly best. Um, but um, Jehu convinces the eunuchs actually to kill her and throw her out the window. Her body like splatters on the ground. These horses trample over her. And eventually the only thing left of her is like hands and a head. So, so I think what this is doing is I think this is a, like a pretty perfect picture of just her 
like her total wickedness and her pride until the very end. I mean, she dressed up as a queen, even though she knew her death was coming. She never repented. She never regretted what she did, but just represented pride and wickedness. Right. And there was a prophecy that like the birds of the air and the dogs of the field will eat your bodies. And so uh, it's a fulfillment of that. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but just the hands left over and stuff like that. Like that's how you, that's how a foreign king would, um, um, if they were to defeat a king would ultimately, um, have the symbol of defeat. And so this foreign woman gets the same sort of treatment. And then Jehu, um, is sort of trash talking all of Ahab's sons and challenges them and their armies to come out and fight. But, um, the armies are fearful, at least, uh, yeah, uh, the armies are fearful of Jehu and end up kind of turning on Ahab's sons. And so, um, Jehu sort of declares the people innocent saying, look, this is my fight. So you that were some of Ahab's followers, Ahab's kids followers, like if you're willing to turn great, I'm not going to kill you all. But then he runs into some of Ahab's relatives and destroys them along the way. <laughs> He's cleaning house. Yeah. I, I just, I mean, I struggle with this. I, I suppose there's some form of justice. I've not been under the rule of wicked Ahab and his sons, but just personally, I still am, am struggling with all of the violence. And, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's a weird mix because he does show mercy to all these people that are willing to abandon Ahab's family, but he's not showing any mercy to Ahab's family. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and then, and then I love this story where Jehu's like pretending to be a Baal worshiper and he gathers all the Baal worshipers. He gets them all together. He sort of goes almost through the motions, making sure that none of the other worshipers are worshiping Yahweh like that are there. And then he just kills them all. He's like, let me make sure that it's only Baal worshipers here. Like any Yahweh worshipers? No. Okay. You're all going to die. And then they toss them all in the sewage and it's like shame upon shame yeah. in the story. And they yeah. destroy the Baal worship. It's great. Yeah. That's, that's the right thing to do. I mean, I, I can't. Can't fault Jehu on dealing with that. <laughs> right. So Jehu has kind of set up his kingdom to be strong. He's wiped out what he needs to wipe out, but he continues to sin. I don't know that we see him. I don't know that we see him as being someone who really wants to follow and obey Yahweh. I, I don't I don't know what his motivation is. Um, yeah. Maybe he's just choosing the sins he really hates or the people he really hates to wipe out and ignoring his own pet sins. Uh, but again, his, his behavior is brutal and I see how there is justice in it, but uh, he's definitely not our, the person we want to look to as a, as a great ruler and leader. Yeah. I mean, he deals with the bail stuff, but he never deals with the golden calves. And so, um, and the narrator certainly wants us to know that. Um, and so, yeah. And then, you know, what we see is we see one little line in, this passage that says, in those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. So we start to see Israel fall apart even more. And that's where we see the Lord doing something. And so the way that he is using Jehu to bring about judgment is that we see Israel continuing to fall apart. Yeah, yeah, the the Assyrians are starting to take over land. Meanwhile, back in the south in Second Chronicles 21, uh, and this is going to be a little bit stepping back in time again, uh, we're introduced uh, again to Jehoram, uh, who is just awful. He kills his own brothers. He marries Ahab's daughter. Um, but one of the most vital verses to the story of the south uh, exists here where, where it says, like, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant he had made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. And it's, it almost feels like, because of their sin, God God absolutely um, um, should and maybe felt even justified to do that. But he also said, like, look, like I've made these promises and I'm not going to go against them. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, Jehoram is, he had the chance to follow in the footsteps of Asa, uh, but he didn't. And a lot of that came from this marriage alliance that I think he made with Ahab's 
with Ahab and Ahab's daughter. And so he brought in idol worship and injustice and um, all of Israel suffers under his leadership because he chose to follow the ways of wickedness. Yeah. And that marriage alliance plays out pretty poorly. But before we get there, it's even worth to note that Elijah sends a, a letter to the Southern folks. Like he's got enough of the mess to deal with in the North, but uh, this, this King is shady enough that he's even willing to write a letter being like, all right, I don't know why you're marrying into this Northern family. You shouldn't do this. Um, and, um, and as punishment, the, the city gets ransacked and he dies of this stomach disease. No one seems to really care. And they don't even bury him with the other Kings. Like he's a pretty dismal end to his life. And then Ahaziah, uh, takes over uh, in Judah. Uh, and, but he's influenced by his, Northern kingdom, daughter of Ahab, Baal worshiping mom. Yeah. Um, and he has a very short reign. And so uh, his uncle asked him for help fighting the Syrians. He goes up to the Northern kingdom to help him fight. He's giving comfort to Joram. And as we just read of Jehu showing up to town, killing everybody, Jehu kills the king of the North and he kills the king of the South in the process. Um, yeah. And we read that it was ordained by God that the downfall of Ahaziah would happen. And so we, again, we see that God is still working here and we don't always understand it. It's difficult to spot, but we get these tiny glimpses of God's hand through Elijah, through Elijah, and even through verses like these. He has not forgotten his people. And then in a twist, we don't go to any sons. We go, jump up to the mom um, who decides to, to take the throne there in Judah, this daughter of Ahab, uh, and puts all of her grandsons to death. Um, at least she tries to. Uh, luckily, one Oof. child is snuck away, a child named Joash. He's raised in the temple with Jehoiada and Jehoshabeth uh, until the time is right. Yeah, I think this is such an interesting stopping part for our weekly reading. I don't know if you guys take breaks between the reading or not, but it's like this cliffhanger. It's like, could there be hope? Because to everybody, it looks like it's hopeless. We don't even have someone from the line of David on the throne, but there's this one guy. What's going to happen? Yeah, and, and there's twice in the reading this past week where it's there's almost a full wipeout of the line, the lineage in the Southern kingdom. David's lineage is almost completely wiped out in the storylines, whether it was the Edomites who came to town or whether it was this woman yet, God is working. God is preserving uh, through the faithfulness of his people, through things like that. He, he's making it happen. Yeah. So let's jump to Romans uh, as we sort of get closer to the end here of this letter. Uh, and we get a, passage that uh, both sides of politics uh, love to quote when it fits their position. It's not uncommon. Mm -hmm. uh, and remember, this is a Caesar likely uh, had recently kicked out Jews. Maybe the current Caesar is not that guy, but he's still not all that great. Um, there's been persecution to the church. So there's some tension as you read that where Paul's like, submit to authorities. Like these are shady authorities. Yeah. We also know Christians are persecuted and one of their persecutions has to do with whether they pledge allegiance to Jesus over Caesar. So there's certainly enemies of the state in their disobedience as well. And so this isn't a catch-all, obey everything that the government does. Um, so Paul's instruction, though, is live a good life so there's nothing to condemn, likely outside of gospel obedience in the face of the mm -hmm. state. And so, um, but Paul teaches that God has a plan with all governing authorities. They're there for a reason. Now, the difficulty is we don't always know from our perspective whether they're placed there to be a blessing, to be a judgment, to whatever they may be, to, to clarify a remnant, whatever it may be. And so because of our lack of perspective, we obey without forsaking the commands that we have um, and, and don't always know. Like, was the last president a blessing or a curse? I, I don't know. I think time will tell. And, and so we'll We'll continue to watch. There yeah, you. this passage, you know, even outside of this idea of submission, 
it should give us comfort, at least as Americans in this democracy who have had some really contentious elections, to remember that whoever ends up in office, God is appointed. And we don't know what God's plan is for that person. It does not mean that that ruler is going to do God's will, but God is appointed and allowed that person to be in that position of authority. And so we can have peace in knowing that God is sovereign and, and in control, whether you're happy with the outcome of the elections or not. Yeah. So pay who you owe, like your taxes to the government, but, um, but pay things. And if you, you, but don't go into debt, like except for love, like that is the debt we should owe people. Um, now is that a principle to be applied to all things and mortgages and stuff like that? Uh, we're not going to deal with all that in the podcast. Maybe. That sounds like, <laughs> sounds like a whole other podcast, but, um, but Jesus' teaching here um, is is so central. I mean, he makes a huge transition of love here, um, where it's love your neighbors, clothing yourselves with love instead of the flesh. Like, the, let's cast off the things of this world, which would have been the flesh, which would have been the self-sacrificing things, and or uh, the living for self, and and point towards a self-sacrificing way, the love-centered way of Jesus. Like that is. That is the move where Paul sort of like, let's talk about the application. The application of the whole gospel message is for you not to focus on yourself, but to love others in this process. Like that is how, that is how we start figuring this thing out. And Paul casts vision for the kingdom to come. He casts vision for, um, yeah, Christ's return and that we are people of the light. And so I think one thing to understand, this is our eschatology or what we think about Christ's return and heaven. It's going to inform our interactions with others even today. So love your neighbor. Don't give any provision for your flesh because Christ is coming and we as Christians are people of the light and not of the dark. He spent so many chapters arguing to remember who we are and what it means that we are saved and that we can operate out of the work of the Spirit. And so it looks like loving others more than we love ourselves. Um, and we'll cover things like how to be good Good citizens, how to be good neighbors, and why we should actually do these things. That is the practical application to everything we talked about in the beginning of Romans. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it almost feels a little bit like going back to, to the end of the church in Corinth, where mm-hmm. Paul's dealing with the mess of how people are getting along and, and how they interact with each other and all these spiritual gifts and all this kind of stuff. And then he just stops and goes, hold on. The principle we, that undergirds how we need to think about this is love. Like that is central, even though we use that whole passage for weddings, but um, it's central. And I think Paul's doing the same thing here. So he's like, look, central to this is love. So let's not pass judgment on one another. So like when there's gray areas where scripture isn't a hundred percent very clear about things where, um, there's people, and he uses the analogy of weak and strong, which um, sometimes carry positive negatives. Uh, sometimes it, it, it can be um, a, a weaker, newer person in the faith or something that like that. But it can also um, mean people that are more narrow in their faith or people that are wider, if that makes sense. People that are probably more um, uh, precise or confined in some of their convictions than somebody else. And so... Um, yeah, and so I, I think it allows these, what as the NIV calls it, disputable matters um, t- to be um, worked through for people that have different convictions about different things. And so, sadly, sadly, Paul doesn't draw out all those gray areas, but he gives us a, a framework, some principles around holiday or maybe Sabbath days, as well as food we eat. Um, and, and the principle is, hey, like if you choose to celebrate a holiday, do it unto the Lord. If you choose not to celebrate that holiday and abstain from it out, out of a desire for obedience, do that that to the Lord as well. Like, but don't judge each other if you're both doing those things to the Lord. And it is one of these areas that's disputable. Um, and, and it's not so that you can just feel more secure in your position, but how do we treat those who we don't agree with? And so, um, it, it's, 
it's when we start judging our brother, it's like completely against the reconciliatory work of how I love my neighbor. And so um, consider your neighbor and how you feel about your convictions too. Yeah, I think what it comes back to is it makes me think of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about taking the log out of your own eye before the splinter out of someone else's eye. But the goal here is that we're going to prioritize unity over our own opinions. And um, that's hard. The one who may have, quote unquote, more freedom is tempted to despise the one who isn't as free or the one who's more restricted may be tempted to judge and stop for a moment and think about like, where do you do this? Do you mock or criticize those who are more restricted in how they live their lives? Or do we judge ourselves as more holy than others when we watch others live with freedoms that we don't ourselves have? And God is saying, or Paul here is saying, look to the Lord and do what you do to the Lord and find the freedom in that and prioritize, prioritize unity. Yeah. And, and Paul makes, I think, one of his oddest or funniest lines where he's like, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is in clean itself. So like he knows that like he's not just it's my opinion. He says, I know in the Lord that this is true, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And so Paul gets into this a little bit of this discussion where it's like, look, on these disputable matters, like we all have to do what we are convicted about and we think is the best. And so if we think it's sin, we should avoid it. And if we do it, but if we do it, if we end up giving into it or whatever it is, we violate our own conscience and it is sin for us. And so it may not be sin for someone else, but if we are convicted that it is sin, then it is sin for us. And so um, we just have to be cautious not to impose ours upon others. Like we actually help others in their disputable matters and areas as well. We don't want to be stumbling blocks for people if they're convictions are different than us around some of these areas. And so um, we seek to love our brother even when we disagree with them. Yeah. And this is hard for us as these fiercely independent people and culture. We're very much of a, I do whatever I want to do. And if you have a problem with it, that's your problem sort of people. But Paul is saying the opposite. He's saying we are to sacrifice our own freedom in order to help others live out their faith and convictions. So the Gentiles and the Jews here probably couldn't be more different. And Paul encourages them to prioritize unity over their own preferences and personal convictions. So for us, you know, whether you drink alcohol or you don't, or you drive a new car or an old car, or you spend your vacation on mission trips or on a Caribbean cruise. Or dare I say, wear a mask or not. Yeah, or wear a mask (laughs) or not. Yeah. Prioritize unity above your own decisions. That's hard. It's really hard for us. It's easy to read and really, really hard to practice. Yeah. And the examples given, the way of Christ is is a not focused on self, but a focus on others. And even if they're insulting you, that is a sacrificial, other-oriented love. Um and we get this little mini benediction and Paul's like, like this, be one on this. Like we, I need you to Gentile disjointed church to be one on this issue. Yeah. Please know that Paul has really devoted a lot of words to talking about our interactions with one another. That is such a, an essential component to how we live out our phase practically. And the work and invitation of the strong is to bear with the weak. And we do this through seeking to please our neighbors before we seek our own pleasure. And then Paul gives some rapid fire of about four different Old Testament passages from Psalm 18 to Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, Isaiah 11. Hopefully you look some of those things up. Um, But in those texts, the the context of those quotes is is God addressing both the Jews and the Gentiles in different texts of saying like, look, like I am doing a work. Jesus will be that work, but he was doing a work and and that Jesus truly is this hope that God has been promising all along. Um, 
This isn't a new, this isn't a surprise. God has been saying this the whole time. Yeah. I love that. He kind of wraps up this whole discussion around pointing to Christ as a servant to all. And we get this promise and prayer from Paul at the end that kind of, I mean, it's not the very end, but one of his endings, um, this promise and prayer that makes the main thing, the main thing we are given joy and we are given peace and believing we don't live under sorrow and fear and unbelief. We have the Holy spirit's power and our works are not based on weakness. And if we are given the gift of abounding hope, we're not waffling in failure and giving up. And this is what it means to sit under the finished work of Christ. And that is an amazing, amazing gift. Yeah. And then Psalm 18. So we read the last half of Psalm 18. You probably had to look at at the beginning to get a little bit of context. But um, I just I see David crying out to God in his most broken places, but also in his triumphs. And I just really love the phrase, your gentleness made me great. Yeah. The author sort of has this, this sort of like, if if you're loyal to God, like God can help give you these victories. And um, a lot of it in this text definitely feels like the defeat of enemies. There's it's not a whole lot of text of like mercy and kindness to my enemies. It's like, uh, if God's with me, then I'm going to, I'm going to be able to ransack every enemy I face. And so uh, it's, it's a lot of confidence. Um, but yeah, next week. So I think in the Old Testament, follow the story of Joash. It seems kind of hopeful and it ends with us continuing to desire for a better King. Um, so you'll have some ups and downs in reading his story, but follow it closely, I guess. And then in the new Testament, I would compare, you're going to read another doxology in Romans 16 and compare it to the first part of Romans 1. Paul emphasizes some similar things at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. So what are they? Why does he start and end with these ideas? Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so for me in the Old Testament, I mean, there's some key differences uh, between the two books on the Joash story. Uh, One much more highlights some of the downfall uh, of this king. And so um, just take that step back. I know we've talked about it as we've talked about Kings and Chronicles. Like, why do you think that is? And and what do you remember about the audiences that would make you think, think, why did this author include all these extra information and, and who might they be addressing? Uh, and when it comes to the new Testament, uh, yeah, we're beginning with Mark next week. Do your homework. Uh, it, it becomes helpful really to know mm-hmm. why a gospel writer is writing and when and to whom the best we know, um, what are some themes that accompany that? Like, um, it, it just helps with some of the interpretive things. So like when, I mean, just to, just to play a little bit, like when, when Mark opens and he includes the word gospel in his opening sentence right. to a certain crowd, how would that be perceived? And so, um, yeah. That's or important. count how many times he uses the word immediately, even in the first chapter. Right. There's a lot of themes in Mark that are pretty easy to spot and follow. Yep. So that's it for me this week. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.